So it's 1999 and I'm at the top of my game. I have a stable of clients all over the world in primarily big oil, pharmaceutical, defense, all of them looking to get an edge in their highly competitive space. That's their core initiative. Um, I couldn't have hit the timing better than I did and I am their secret weapon. I help them win and they love me for it. I'm young, living a jet set life and the catalyst for millions of dollars shifting hands and I'm loving every second of it. I'm completely clueless of the risks associated for the most part. There were certainly things that did happen that were hair raising. Um, but most of the time we conducted operations between Kuwait, London, and Dubai. The operations were becoming very challenging, um, each one sort of more than the next and naturally more lucrative each time we would get a new, new client or new operation from the same client. This, as the sophistication grew, um, so did the skills and the talents required, not to mention the technology. And in many cases, I would negotiate to, to keep the equipment that was part of the project, which really helped me build quite the arsenal over time. I had everything. And for those in the, in the industry, remembering the old days, I had everything from large Yagi and parabolic antennas, amps, uh, pretty much every flavor of PCMCA card you, you would ever need for war driving back when, uh, when that was a thing. And, uh, then there was the very expensive gear like magnetic card readers and replicators, night vision and laser microphones, um, really kind of ancient tech by today's standards. But back then truly bleeding edge, you know, you simply just didn't have the same, um, situation that you have today where you really did have to do things that were pretty unique. The laser mic stories are probably some of the best. Um, you know, honestly, uh, one of the most fascinating pieces of technology at the time, because most people didn't even know they existed. And you even say today, and you talk about laser microphones and people really have no idea what we're talking about. And um, really to give you some sense of how these things were used, because I think it was one of the most fascinating tools we had in our arsenal, is that we would identify a boardroom or an office of the target organization that we were looking to solicit or, or, you know, harvest intelligence from, we would identify a location with a clear line of sight to the windows of that given office or boardroom. Um, generally speaking, we'd look for someplace ideal, like a hotel, um, you know, an apartment complex, if we could get into one of the apartments, if that made sense, um, less favorably, if you had, if you had to do something under uh, sort of duress, you would work with like a parking garage, but, you know, setting up and, and, um, with the equipment there and everything else. I mean, you know, people driving by might give you a weird look, uh, between all the equipment that we had that we're, that we're pulling out of the, these cases, these Pelican cases. So it was pretty interesting, but basically the way this would work is you'd point the laser microphone, uh, at the window of the room, whether, whether it was the boardroom or the office in such a way where almost like banking off a, a pool table where you'd bounce off the window back to what's called the receiver and it was part of the laser mics kit and that usually was right next to the laser mic you know just literally a matter of like a foot away from it depending on the trajectory or the the angle of of the bounce and that receiver would collect the modulations of that laser due to the imperceptible vibrations of the window um, of that office or boardroom that was caused by the conversations happening within the room so that modulation uh, was translated into a WAV file that we could scrub 
of any noise, um, especially of the, like, for example, the vibrations of the window in our room, because even the slightest little bit of noise or an air conditioner that would have been running could be imperceptibly vibrating the uh, window of our hotel room or our um, apartment, which would actually skew the sound, but it's easy to scrub. And there you have it. You have a complete um, recording of the meeting that happened in, in the office or boardroom of the building, practically, you know, half a mile away in some cases. It certainly had its limits, but it was pretty incredible. And that was immediately ready for transcription and, and information gathering. And the beauty of it is it required no incursion or physical access to the environment, which is which was a luxury at the time. So, you know, those were really, really cool kinds of tools. We get I get asked a lot about what was some of the coolest stuff that we had at the time, and that was definitely one of them. Um, but <laughs> More often than not, it was probably something a lot more simple, like hiring a, a janitor uh, of the organization that we were targeting to drop like a cell phone set to silent uh, with an extended battery in the drop ceiling of the target room um, after hours, whatever the case may be. Um, we just had to make sure that we knew the date and time of the meeting so we could call the phone and record the conversation. It was incredible, um, you know, just simple, uh, but it worked. It worked very, very effectively. So quite, frank, quite frankly, I bet if you, if you pop the drop ceilings of many of these large organizations, you might very well find some old dead Nokia 3310s out there, uh, either by my team or someone else's at some point. So really fascinating, you know, experiences, uh, literally these stories are, are just unbelievable. Even to me talking about them in, in retrospect. I mean, I look at them like, man, I can't believe we were doing things like this. Um, but you know, honestly, some of the more simple tactics work the best social engineering, uh, you know, people on, on the phone, many cases overworked and underpaid executive assistants were the favorite. Uh, they were more than willing to share information unknowingly. Um, yeah, they're distracted. They're busy. Usually you're not going to get through to an executive and frankly, they're not willing to usually talk. So most of the time, the gatekeepers are the ones that will give away a lot happens today a ton still. Absolutely. Um, and then Every now and then it would take a much more sophisticated execution. Um, one of our more successful operational methods was something that we actually called the Trinity. It's a nickname for it. And it would all start with profiling the mark, right? So those of you interested in how this kind of stuff happens in the real world, even though it's really never talked about and it's something that's kind of this dark art that, you know, you never really hear about is that you would, you would identify a target within an organization many times the client would help us identify who would might, might likely be the best target for something like this. And we would identify the vector and to get to that individual or that group and conduct some very detailed reconnaissance to, to figure out how to get that information. And it would be everything. And it would be very similar to what you see, as I mentioned in my last podcast, a lot of what we did emulated what you see in things like heist movies. We would research where they go to after work for drinks, where they eat dinner, what their hobbies are, the social circles they're part of, um, their timings, have, you know, their habits. Are they a punctual person or not? You know, are they someone that just perpetually late? Are they messy? Are they clean? Are they, you know, how do they treat their car? I mean, all these details were critical for the first and second and treasury steps of, of, of the process. And once we'd established some sort of profiling of that, of that individual that we were going to target as the mark, uh, a contact would be made. And the way that would work is we would send in, uh, an operative. Um, and it was this, this whole effort was, was essentially three operatives working in, in, uh, in symphony. And the first operative would go serendipitously 
happened to be at the bar at the same time as the mark magically uh, armed with a little bit of information from what we were able to glean from the outside to strike up a conversation. And I'll tell you, this is where human nature comes into play in a big way. People unconsciously love to gloat um, and overshare, especially if the conditions are opportune. And frankly, when an attractive individual expresses interest uh, in you or whatever, those tend to be the ideal conditions. So it really was not very hard uh, after a little bit of effort to get someone to start sharing a little bit of detail. And we're not talking about, you know, critical information we were looking to get for the client, but it was enough information about the target, uh, perhaps, or specifically themselves, the mark, that that information would be then brought back to us. That sparkling repartee would be recorded and the information would be conveyed to operative two. And operative two would study the information, uh, commit it to memory, and then serendipitously yet again, run into that mark at the gym, or our perfect scenario was at an industry event because usually that would then be where they're more open to conversation. They're there to actually network and mingle and communicate. So because operative two is armed with the information from the first operative, they all of a sudden have all this in common with this individual magically. And, and this individual's like, man, we just, so many things in common went to the same schools, especially if it's information gathered from the first conversation with operative one, it just looks magical to, to the mark. And, you know, what's really fascinating is that, um, at these industry events, we'd, we could pretty much just look at the room and identify who were corporate spies anywhere we looked. <laughs> they kind of stuck out like sore thumbs to us, kind of all knew, knew what those people looked like. And, um, those further details gleaned by operative two would then in turn be passed to operative three. And that was the candidate was, that was most likely to establish the trust with that mark. So good example of this, and this sounds very, it's stereotyping and it's profiling, but I'll just, it's the way it worked is let's say our target in this case was a large organization with a CFO or some sort of, um, financial executive. Well, we would make sure operative three was an individual that would meet the specifications of someone that probably would know how to communicate that way. Like we're not going to send in a playboy model to speak about really highly sophisticated technical or financial issues. We would send in someone that looks more like the part so they could actually build rust and have a meaningful conversation. And then over the course of several days or weeks, that key intelligence was collected and utilized, um, against secondary and tertiary marks inside the organization. So it was just a building process until such time we were able to fully get what was asked of us by the, by the client. So, Honestly, you know, these kinds of operations are, are not uncommon for what you find with the government doing it. Um, we were doing it obviously in a private capacity for our clients and it was fascinating stuff. And honestly, I mean, I could go on for, for hours on these, on these, you know, engagements we were on, uh, the kinds of tactics and methods we used. And I'll tell you, it was a long way from my first endeavor in Kuwait, getting a hold of uh, that information for, for our customer or our vendor to win. But, uh, it, it was incredible. Long-term engagements would also include things like getting our operative hired into the target organization. Yep. We would truly get someone in there employed by the, um, by the organization that we were looking to solicit information from. And, uh, that was a, that was a long-term effort, but it was, it was critical to some of that much more, much more challenging in today's world, honestly, between the background checks and all the, the information available to kind of research an individual, not nearly as easy as it used to be. So. You know, I think that uh, that's going to be a vestige of the past as, as time goes on here. So suffice it to say, business was going really well. 
and um, I was enjoying myself. And I, as with anyone that's doing really well with business, they want to expand. And so my next logical step was to start to bring it back to the States, um, did a little bit of, of research and, and chose to move to Atlanta in 2001 and um, very rapidly got acquainted with the emerging cybersecurity community there. Really great uh, opportunity at the time. There was a lot of growth in that specific area and a very exciting, exciting time. And uh, just as I was getting my office established um, and client outreach established, um, 9-11 hit. Very sad time, very hard time for everyone. I think every one of us remember it in some capacity wherever we were at the time. And, you know, outside of the um, incredible hit, you know, to morale and a variety of other things, so were budgets. Um, and, you know, for what I was doing, which, you know, while, of course, in my mind, it's probably the most important thing a company can do, uh, it was a, it was sort of a luxury item, you know, to, to have a competitive intelligence professional available to, to solicit information so they can win. So a lot of those budgets were frozen or diverted. And um, so, you know, challenging situation. Uh, and that was something that, that universally hit the world. It wasn't just in the US. I think everyone sort of uh, hunkered down a little bit to say, all right, how are we gonna handle this? And, and you know, reassess their, their priorities and, and everything else. And fortunately, it definitely was a, a, tough, a tough time for everyone, including my fresh business in the US. I hadn't, I hadn't established a name. You know, there was no, um, and I didn't really want to leave. I'd just gotten there and I'd just established some, you know, base of friends and, and, and colleagues and whatnot. So a few weeks before Thanksgiving, I met with a friend for a beer, uh, and some sushi. I remember it vividly in Buckhead and, uh, suffice it to say, this was a very notable legend in cybersecurity. Uh, those that are that know me, uh, and probably are putting two and two together, probably could guess who this person was, but uh, he will remain nameless. Um, but he had always been intrigued by my business and was willing to hear my belly aching. <laughs> and he said something so simple yet so profound. He said, why don't you offer to protect your existing clients from guys like you? Uh, and exactly, he goes, I mean, you know what you would do to get information from them, right? Should be a cakewalk, right? And it's funny because I just sort of stared at him. <laughs> I was like, man, that's genius. I Naturally, I did. I, I had ideas around it. But when sometimes, and this is a key lesson in this, you might know the path, but it takes someone individual uh, separate from you, you know, not, not you to sort of say something for it to click. And it was like, obviously, that's so clear. Why wouldn't I have thought of that? The whole world was focused on security and protecting themselves and, and, you know, giving, getting themselves in a much more protected position, this, this couldn't be a better time for me to sort of shift. So that day I changed the subtitle on my business card from competitive intelligence to counterintelligence. And that's where things got even more fun for the next nine years. I conducted some of the most exciting large scale vulnerability assessments and counterintelligence and countermeasure development projects ever. Um, progressively becoming more information security oriented. So InfoSec started to infiltrate every piece of the, of the conversation of the request. And so naturally the talent pool that I was sourcing and pulling into the company, depending on the need of the client became much more computer savvy and, um, focused on the vector of the attacks on, on those parts of the organization rather than the individuals directly. 
So really, you know, more and more focus was on the servers and the networks. This is a little bit before cloud, so to speak, um, but certainly that was there. Data centers were very much a part of the equation, uh, not always on-prem environments, and those were things that were highly targeted and whatnot. Um, now, I did say versus the individual, but I do want to clarify. Today, you know, even a single login and password harvested from the right individual is generally all a skilled threat actor needs rather than exploratory surgery hacking, which is noisy and expensive. So quite frankly, some things never change. Maybe just the speed with which they happen is, is probably what really changes in this case, especially with technology. So just when I thought I had seen it all, I decided to build a product. But that, my friends, is for another episode. Have a great day.